when you're working for a startup, you have to learn at about like, and move at about 10x the pace that you would at any other company. That's Hannah Donovan, the CEO and co-founder of Trash, a new currently unreleased predictive video editing platform. But before we get into all that, we're really excited to have Hannah join us to share her incredible story and insights with us. Hannah's career in consumer startups began with a flight to the UK to join Last.fm. After several years working there and a big acquisition, Hannah returned to New York and launched her own startup called This Is My Jam. After a few more years running that and continuing to experiment with the creative tools and media formats, she joined Vine as a general manager in New York, where she was faced with one of the biggest challenges in this industry, finding a way to gracefully shut down a product we all love. What Hannah is talking about is what it's really like working in tech startups, the degree to which pace and learning is critical to success and its impact on your own professional development, which, as we'll discuss, is sometimes challenging. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland, and today we're speaking with Hannah Donovan, the CEO and co-founder of Trash, a new startup that's currently building a predictive video editing platform for creators. Hannah's passion for media and design in all forms goes back to her early childhood. Hannah eventually moved to New York before using the remainder of her savings to fly to the UK to interview with Last FM, where she was the first designer and woman hired on the team. Following the $280 million acquisition of Last FM by CBS, Hannah moved back to New York her product ideas and hypothesis on mixing AI and user recommendations in the audio space further with the launch of This Is My Jam, a cool and innovative platform for music lovers. After almost four years working on that technology, Hannah continued to pursue her interests and passions for creating new forms of content and art, as well as a creative process of using a variety of tools. She joined Drip.com, which was acquired by Kickstarter, and then Twitter's own Vine platform, where she was faced with a unique challenge of shutting down the platform shortly after joining. Hannah joins us to share her story, how she got into designing startups, what it was like working at Last.fm in the UK as the first designer, what it was like launching and growing her first music startup, This Is My Jam, how she created the opportunity to join Vine as the general manager, what it was like having to face the immense challenge of shutting the beloved platform down while simultaneously preserving the amazing content, how she managed to pursue her passions and curiosities while establishing a career in consumer entertainment technology, what she's currently up to with her new startup trash, and much more. So let's get started. Hey Hannah, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. Likewise, Branko and I are very excited to have you on the show. But before we get into your story and what you're currently up to today, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? I always have so much trouble with this question, actually, when people ask me about my background, because I've actually done a lot of different things and I never know which ones to share, but I'll, I'll give you a selection. So I'm from a place called Edmonton, which is a pretty isolated city in Canada. It's pretty far north. And I grew up there, the oldest of six kids, which was, I think, where I gained a lot of my early leadership ability. And my father's an entrepreneur, my family's lots of entrepreneurs. And so I think that was also kind of in my blood growing up. I took a keen interest in design and I studied graphic design in college. But 
sort of shortly after that, like the internet started to happen in like a pretty big way. And so I was very, very interested in how I could take my design skills and start building websites, which is what I started to do right out of college. That's my very humble origins. (laughs) That's awesome. I didn't realize you were from Edmonton. Both Franco and I are from Ottawa, but I've been living in Toronto for the past three years or so. Yeah, Rad, it's always awesome to meet some other Canadians. I lived in Toronto for a hot minute, too, before I moved to London <laughs> to go work for Last FM. That's amazing. And I totally want to dive into that shortly. But just to set up and frame the rest of the episode for our listeners, where did your passion for media and technology come from? The reason, I think, for this is that I actually, this is kind of a secret, so you should tell your listeners, like, I'm about to tell you a secret now. I actually wasn't really allowed to watch television as a kid, believe it or not. Um, My mother is an English professor and a playwright, and she was pretty keen on me reading books. And so I was allowed to watch, like, I think one hour of some sort of, you know, like, public broadcasting. I think it was, like, KSPS or something like that. But I didn't really have TV. And so because of that, obviously, I was just enamored by it. And I wanted to get all of it that I could because it was, like, this forbidden thing. So I spent a lot of my childhood uh, hanging out at my friends' houses, watching TV at their place, trying to figure out how to make sense of all these shows and also like remember the plots and the characters and things really quickly and like these sort of snaps and bites of it. Because obviously, if you can't do that, you're just at a loss for being able to have any conversation with other kids at school. It's just like you're you're going to be like living under a rock if you don't know what's happening. And so I think that that was where my my intense interest and curiosity started to come from. And then when I was a little bit older, I got my own computer. And that was definitely a big part of it because I was I was really into using our family computer when I was a kid. And I, I used Mac Paint a lot and like made a lot of creations and designs and things, but quickly got more interested in like, okay, how can I actually use this thing to do more interesting stuff? And I actually built my first PC with my dad, my dad's help. I asked him for a computer and he brought home a bunch of parts and was like, let's put this thing together. And once we did put it together, I discovered Napster. And that was really, that was a serious gateway for me. And that was the point where I think it was like just this culmination of not being allowed to have TV growing up and having been in the shoes of someone that maybe also didn't have access to the kind of music that I really wanted to be listening to. Because before that, I mean, growing up in kind of an isolated city like Edmonton, like I was really at the mercy of whatever CDs Walmart was carrying. And so this notion that the right music could get to the right ears, that the internet made it possible for anyone to discover the things that that were truly meaningful to them and emotional to them was, was a really, really big moment in my life. Life, and it really all kind of stemmed from there. And it's it's never really stopped. I still continue to have this voracious curiosity for all things pop culture, music and TV and film related. That's really cool. You're bringing back all those early web chat room and torrenting memories. So from those first experiences with TV, music and the internet, how did you start your career? What were some of your first few jobs? Sure. Well, I started my career as an entrepreneur pretty early. I started my first company, so to speak, when I was about 15 years old. I'm also a musician. I'm a cellist. I've been playing since I was three years old. And I started a string quartet with some friends. And we we were we were like really in it just to make money. Um, so we, <laughs> we did things like almost charged what union workers charged, but like not quite because we weren't. And um, we also arranged a lot of pop songs for people 
people. So if someone wanted us to play like, oh, this is going to be a super Canadian reference, but like Hockey Night in Canada for their wedding, we would arrange that for you because no other string quartet probably would because they were all like these, I'm generalizing, but a lot of them were more interested in playing, you know, like high classical music. Let me put it that way. That's very diplomatic. So we we did this and I did that all through high school and then college. And that was like my part-time job. And then besides that, the other thing that I was doing is my dad worked in the fashion industry. He was a buyer and, and owned a very large high-end women's clothing store out West. And I started working there at a very, very young age. I was like steaming clothes and doing inventory and like all the shitty jobs that the boss's daughter gets to do. And I think that was incredible training for me in terms of what it really takes to run a company and also the jobs that actually the people that own the company end up doing at the end of the day. But as I slowly worked my way up there, he noticed that I was pretty talented at doing windows. And that was another thing that I did all the way throughout high school was I did all the window displays. And so it was sort of like starting to combine these interests in like design and fashion and pop culture and music and entrepreneurship. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with all of these things quite just yet. But when I was in high school, luckily, the University of Alberta showed up and they gave this presentation on design at my art class. And I was like top of my art class in high school. That was by far my best subject. I was a good student, but that was that one was off the charts. And that was kind of the moment where I was like, wait a minute, you mean there's like a job where I can like write words and make shapes look cool together? And this is a real thing that I could do for the rest of my life? And <laughs> after getting pretty excited about that, I because I didn't know any designers and like I had no access to graphic design at that age. I had no idea really what it was as a field or where people practiced it or how the hell one even started to go about getting a job in it. And so I'm a pretty big nerd, obviously. So I went to the library and started looking at some books. And that was actually when I found a book by Paula Scher, or I found some of her work in a book. And that was a pretty pivotal moment for me because it was the first time that I saw a woman doing this job that I thought was maybe like a little bit out of reach for me. And just seeing her work and being like, oh, wow, this is possible. Like she can do it. I can do it right there from that moment, I was like, this is absolutely what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to become a graphic designer. I'm going to open my own agency. I'm going to move to New York. <laughs> it was like, that was the plan. And, you know, that's kind of in, in a weird way. It's sort of panned out in a different way because technology happened. But here I am in New York running my own thing right now. So those were like my very early jobs and how they influenced me on my path. So early on, you mentioned joining Last FM in the UK, where you were the head of creative. So can you tell us more about how you created that opportunity and what the entire experience was like, both before and after the acquisition with CBS? I mean, it was it was pretty bonkers. Like, I think if you talk to anyone who's been through a major acquisition like that, they'll tell you the same thing. It was really an incredible stroke of luck to get that job. And I was actually, at the time, pursuing my plan. I was going to move to New York and actually had been accepted into Parsons and SCA and was trying to decide on grad school. And this was after I had been working as a web designer in Toronto for a few years, climbing my way up the agency ladder and realized that, like, you know, doing design work for 
clients is cool, but really I wanted to sink my teeth into something that was more long-term and something that lasted years instead of months so that I could really go deep on a problem. And a friend suggested that I interview for this role at Last FM. And so I was like, no, I'm going to move to New York. Like this is already happening. And at the last minute he was like, you know, I think you really, I think you should really consider this, Hannah. And I was like, all right, well, I really trust you. So I had a quick look at my bank balance and there was like just enough in there for a flight to London from New York. And so I had my portfolio and everything with me and I just went over there and and did it. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was moving to London to go work for Last FM. And when I started working there, we were a very small team. There was only, I want to say it was like 10 or 12 of us or something like that. I was the first woman they hired, also the first designer that they hired. And it was a lot of education on both sides. I had to learn very quickly a lot of things that were just like the cutting edge of big data and machine learning and using algorithms to understand all sorts of things about music taste and the wisdom of the crowds. And we were like on the cusp of inventing some of the most sort of important tech for intention data in music. I had to absorb all of those things so quickly. The learning curve was so, 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 so steep. All I remember about the first year was just nonstop learning and feeling completely exhausted every single day, all the time. Also like a new culture, a new country, like all that stuff too, right? But there was also a lot of learning going the other way too because like I said I was the first designer they hired and so I was teaching them a lot about what design is and how to even talk about different types of design graphic design versus product design we didn't really have that word back then but interaction design I guess is what we called it and how to build a design team and how to educate the rest of the company about all of these things and so from there it just grew into a leadership role and I helped them build out the design team for that company I worked really closely with the founder on many, many, many products that we shipped. It was a pretty incredible experience to be able to have so much autonomy and trust and opportunity at such a young age. It was really, at the time, I just remember thinking, oh God, if anyone ever knows how old I am, they'll never let me have this job. (laughs) But looking back on it, I probably should have talked about that a little bit more. And so it was just, it was intense. I think when you're working for a startup, you have to learn at about like, and move at about 10x the pace that you would at any other company, which is why actually when I'm hiring people, when I look at candidates that have startup background, I just, I look at that experience. And if they've been there like one year, I just sort of in my head do the math that it's actually been a lot more years of experience. And going through an acquisition is always is always tricky. I don't think that it's ever an easy thing either for the acquirer or for the company that is being acquired. And in Last FM's case, it was it was certainly tricky. And that was it was a difficult thing to go through. I think especially such a young age that first the first time you have to deal with something like that, I think is always the hardest time. As you get older, you get more perspective and you start to learn that, you know, like what goes up must come down and what's down is going to come back up again. And that's just sort of the law of life. But when you're 25 years old, that's not something you know yet. Yeah, for sure. Sounds like a whirlwind experience. And I definitely agree that spending time in startups will fast track your personal development if you're doing it right, at least. Yep. (laughs) So building off that experience, you ended up moving back to New York and launching your own startup called This Is My Jam. Can you start off by telling us a bit more about this product, what inspired you to create it, and what it was like growing it? Sure. So one of the things that kind of 
was always lodged in the back of my brain while I was working at Last FM was that even though we were trying to build these really rich music profiles based on data made up of the wisdom of the crowds, right? We were we were tracking what people listened to. And then based on what they listened to, we were using that as inputs for recommendations for more music and playlists, and radio stations, pretty much what very similar to what Spotify does today. But the thing that kind of kept sort of like poking its head out for me was that even though this was the mission of the company and the path that we were on, I was running all the user research. And I kept talking to people and discovering that the best music recommendations came from friends. And it just eventually became such a clear fact that it was really hard to ignore. And I kind of wanted to explore how you could maybe use this particular finding in a more in like less of an abstract way. And so maybe there was a way to like add some human curation to the algorithms at the same time, which is, of course, where everybody in this field has now landed. And this is like kind of the status quo finally for anybody that's doing anything with like music information retrieval or just algorithms generally in media. But at the time, this was around 2011, that was still kind of a novel concept. And at the time there was, I just remember multiple panels at South by Southwest every single year that was like human versus machine, you know, all this stuff. And it was like this dichotomy, which of course it isn't. And so my colleague from Last FM, after we had both left, pitched an idea for me, an idea to me rather, for what eventually ended up becoming This Is My Jam. And the minute I heard it, I was just like, I'm on board, we got to do this. And so This Is My Jam was about, you could post one song at a time, and it was ephemeral. So we were also really experimenting with the idea of ephemeral data, because again, people I think were starting to get a little sick of these long histories of data that they were leaving on the internet, which is definitely something that Snapchat obviously tapped into around the same time. And it was really fun, because people were posting their favorite song right now, or like, a really good song like the best song you've got on rotation on your on your iPod or iPhone and so what happened is that we ended up kind of like stacking the deck basically I remember when we first hooked up the Echo Nest playlisting algorithm to it and we thought that it was wrong and we like ran it a few more times and we're just like couldn't believe how good these playlists were and that was when we started to realize like oh the reason that this is so good from a curation standpoint is because the music that's going into to it is also really good, right? You have like good data to start with, you get something good afterwards. And so that was really, that was like the very sort of the intellectual urge that we were like scratching with This Is My Jam, which we did with Incubation from the Echo Nest. Yeah, that's really cool. I do remember using This Is My Jam and really loving the experience. Thank you. It's a pleasure to hear. So you touched a little bit on this core hypothesis behind the product, which was about combining this human element to the AI algorithm. But what were some of the other lessons or insights you took from this experience? Like the platform did scale to over 2 million songs. What were some of the challenges you had to overcome to get there? Oh, so many learnings. Um, I mean... Well, one learning just with that statistic is that there's certain stats that investors and the industry look at for how successful something is. And we were kind of like a weird one because, of course, it wasn't about how many songs people were posting. It was about the quality of the songs. And so that number actually might sound kind of low. But when you think about what we were asking people to do, it's actually very highly engaged. So that was one big lesson, which is that it's hard to talk about your numbers when they look really different 
from the other numbers that were out there. And like, remember, this was the time of Facebook trying to get people to post as many possible things or share as many possible things, which I guess is all kind of maybe changing now. That was one big learning, definitely. One of the things we did early on when we were just building our MVP, which is, you know, where everybody needs to start. And I really like to call it more like an MLP, like a minimum lovable product, not a minimum viable product, because minimum viable products usually suck. They're boring and they're ugly. And there's no reason for me to want to use them, especially in consumer tech. I think that's critical. So one of the things that we did is we just built a private alpha where we let people upload their own music to start with. And obviously this is like totally illegal, but because it was private and it wasn't being exposed really anywhere. It didn't matter. And that was our way of really rapidly testing, hey, like, do people want to post songs? And that was such a big learning experience for me that it's really been a lesson that I took to heart and have used in almost everything since then, which is what is the riskiest possible thing about what we're building? I'm a big believer in risk assessment matrices. I drive them all the time. You know, like if you maybe if you can visualize the way I usually do it is so like on the y-axis you have like high risk low risk at the bottom and then on the x-axis known and unknown unknown over there on the right side of it and so up there in that top right quadrant you would potentially plot all the features that you're thinking of building that are like now high risk and very unknown so high risk is like they cost a lot of money to build or you need a big team to build them and unknown is like never been done before have zero idea how people are going to react to this there's like no data on this and anything up there in that right corner of the chart is stuff that you need to experiment with very, very, very quickly to essentially pay down your uncertainty on it. And the sooner that you get to a conclusion on whether those things are viable, the better off you have a chance of being successful with your product. And so that was something that we did early on. And it was kind of like a, I think a really interesting example of how you can just sort of hack the system to your own needs to get the data that you need to get to know whether something is viable. And then from there, when we saw that people were really enjoying posting these things, then it was just all about watching. Then, of course, we built it out in a way that, you know, wasn't illegal um, <laughs> and launched it publicly. And we just spent a lot of time paying attention to the things that people were doing. I think it's really great once you've got something that is sticking, like once you've found that product market fit, from there, it just becomes so much easier because all you've got to do is just listen and learn and listen and learn. And if you pay attention and if you observe really carefully to what people are doing, there's all sorts of really clear clues about what could use more features, what could go away, what could be built up more. And we just did a lot of careful observation after that moment. And I think one of the best compliments I've ever received was someone said to me that they loved how this is my jam grew really organically. And when we added features, we were also taking away features and it never felt like it got overwhelming. It was always as simple as it was in the beginning, even though it did grow over time. And that to me as a designer was a wonderful thing to hear because at Last FM, I think we definitely suffered a lot from the like feature kitchen sink problem as we were growing so rapidly and just bolting things on one after another. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good piece of insight to avoid feature bloat and create a purposeful experience. So fast forward from that media startup to another one that most listeners will probably recognize and fondly remember, Vine, where you were the general manager. So can you tell us more about what Vine was all about and how you created the opportunity to join the team there? 
yeah, I mean, I, I hope lots of people listening already know what, what Vine was all about. But in case it was six second videos, looping videos, and Vine was acquired by Twitter before it even came out of beta. And so it was always a, a Twitter product. And it was a really intensely cool, amazing cultural platform for sharing video. And in my opinion, some of the best pop art on the internet in the heyday. So I went to go join Vine towards, unfortunately, towards the end of its life, though I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> they hired me and they were very keen to turn things around. But unfortunately, that's not the way things ended up going with the situation that Twitter was in at the time. But, you know, we can we can talk more about that if you want to get real deep or we can talk about creating opportunities. Where would you like to take this one? <laughs> I think we'd love to hear more about exactly how your passion for different forms of media led you to create the opportunity to not only join Vine, but to continue to pursue your interests. I think the thing about opportunities is they're often out there. You just need to sort of tune into them and they, they kind of come to you. And that's that's really just what happens to anybody that gets a job, right? They are already badass at what they do. They find out about the job, they interview for the job, and they win the job because they're great. And like, that's exactly how I got the job at Vine. But in terms of like what led me to that opportunity, which I think is the more interesting question that we're getting at here, is just the constant curiosity and also honoring that curiosity throughout my life and throughout my career to the things that I've been interested in. I have been really careful to just listen to my intuition about the stuff that I find cool and pursue it and never get bogged down by the things that I think I should be doing in my career. Like there wasn't really a whole lot of that ever. And it sometimes can be really difficult because actually before I joined Vine, there was a period where I did feel like my career was in a little bit of turmoil. And I started to question whether just continually listening to my intuition and my curiosity and the, the subjects that I found fascinating actually was the right way to go. But I think I can definitely say that it was and it paid off in the long run. And that really what anybody who's creative has to do. And I think we're very lucky in tech that we have a bit more structure around our world that we do have the luxury of things like steady jobs and paychecks and benefits and stuff like that. But for artists that live in a world that's way less structured, that's not the case, but it comes from the same root of just like continuing to pursue this curiosity. And when I look at my friends that are really successful writers or musicians or artists, it's the same exact thing. It's just like, I'm interested in this thing. I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to like make some side projects about this thing until people take me seriously for this thing. And then I'm going to do this thing on a bigger level. And so that's really all it is. When I was working at This Is My Jam, or when I was when I was building This Is My Jam, I should say, we had the ability for people to post tracks either as audio or as video. And I quickly just became consumed by the video. Like I thought it was way more fascinating. I've always been like a huge fan of music videos. And so that was where I started to get really pulled deep into this world. And it was really, it became really clear to me that that's what I wanted to do next. And I was also working on ways to do programmatic design based 
basically like, how can you design algorithms to make things look aesthetically pleasing? And so we had designed sort of some different filters, I guess you could call them for the jam so that when people posted their song, it would like, they could, you know, hit a few buttons to make something look really cool. And the intersection of this, wow, people can be really empowered to feel super creative with what they're doing. And there's this medium that is exploding on the internet called video right now. Those two things were just the initial pointers for basically the the next sort of track of my career. Because after that, I decided that I was going to learn more about video. I knew I needed to like school up in it and understand the entertainment world. I spent a little bit of time at MTV. I knew I needed to understand the world of creators more. So I put the effort in to go um, work for Drip, which was a startup that got acquired by Kickstarter and learn more about the creator world. And so by the time I was at a point in my life where I was having a conversation with Jack about the Vine job, I was able to point to all of these things that I had done or I had been interested in just by doggedly following my curiosity. Wow, there's a lot packed in there. But one comment you made that stood out that I want to explore really quickly was about trusting your gut. So how did you come to the conclusion that you needed to trust your gut and explore your curiosities? Because you said you were doubting yourself a little bit. Like what changed? Wow, that's a great question. I don't even know if I have a good answer for you. I think part of it was looking at my personal data, which is like something I'm a pretty big fan of. I ruthlessly analyze what I do in my life and constantly I'm trying to improve. And so I had noticed that like there were a few times that I had, or not more than a few, there were many times at last of them where I made bad decisions about product or design. And, you know, a lot of them, I have to say, it was kind of like down to like not trusting my gut. I mean, that wasn't always the case. Like, obviously, there's many factors to take into consideration, like all sorts of stuff, right? Like how long, how much time do we have? How risky is this? How strong is the team for this particular project? What's the budget situation? Like, what are all the things that could go wrong here, right? What's the data saying? What are the users saying? Why, why, why again and again and again? But sometimes I just, I had this feeling in the pit of my stomach when we were doing something or when I was saying like, okay, yeah, let's make that decision that I was just like, I don't think this is right. And those turned out to be some of the biggest mistakes I've made. (laughs) And so I think it was through just ruthless analysis of that, that I was actually, I have good instincts. And people have told me that too. I've heard that feedback, I think a little bit more now. I've heard that in business that I have good instincts. At the time, I wasn't hearing it as much. And I think I actually think this is a completely different tangent, but I think this is a big, big, big problem for women that are coming up in their careers is we don't get the same kind of positive reinforcement reflected back at us. And so we have to really learn these things the hard way or learn these things through trusting ourselves because there's very rarely people around us who are going to tell us when we're doing a good job. But yeah, I guess it was just a lot of personal analysis and trying to be really in touch with who I am and not compromising that just like knowing that I needed to live this life really authentically. Maybe that sounds a bit cheesy, but I don't know. We've only got one. It's not a dress rehearsal. Might as well do the thing you're meant to do, right? Definitely. I completely agree with all that. And so coming back to the challenge that was Vine and unfortunately having to shut it down, what goes into that? What were some of the projects that, you know, had to go on specifically with the creation of the Vine camera? 
Yeah, sure. So it actually unraveled pretty fast after I got there and we were working on a lot of really cool projects. But of course, the project that really overshadows all the projects in my mind is the project of how the hell do we shut Vine down gracefully? And I will talk a little bit about that because I think that obviously it's it's incredibly difficult to do something like that. And it was it was pretty traumatic. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> But I will say that I'm I'm very glad that I did it. And I'm really glad that I stuck that through and saw that project through. And I see it now kind of as like, it was an opportunity. And it was an experience that I'm super grateful for having on many levels, first and foremost, because I shudder to think of like maybe what might have happened if I hadn't been there sometimes because I was so bullish about figuring out how to archive everything and take care of this this work that I really see as some of the most important art on the internet, almost with like the care and respect of how you put something into a, you know, like a museum exhibit was really how I tried to handle that project. But also because, I don't know, maybe it sounds a little bit morbid, but from a purely technical perspective, like the way usually to figure out how to do something is sometimes to take it apart. There's something about learning how to take something apart bit by bit that teaches you some really nuanced lessons that you don't always learn about putting something together. And mark my words, it is much harder to shut something down than it is to start something up. People start companies all the time. It's easy. It's like fun. You buy a domain, you get an AWS account, you hire some people. Great. Easy, easy, easy. Figuring out how to wind those things down is way harder, like way, 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 way harder. And it's even harder when you have to do it in a way that is, well, in a way where you're trying to take it apart in such a way that it doesn't break. <laughs> Let me put it that way. And so that particular project was a huge operational exercise in, okay, how do we take this apart in a way where it doesn't break, where it doesn't cost a significant amount of burn, and some of these pieces can still exist, but the other pieces we we try and pull them out. And it was... um. I don't know. It's kind of like trying to like do a puzzle blindfolded and backwards and it's changing every day. Like it was, it's really quite exceptionally difficult. Um, and I'm extremely proud of the team that pulled that off. It was no uh, easy feat. That is for sure. And the Vine camera, as you mentioned that, that was really like a part of it. It was, okay, how do we continue to offer creators this tool that they've been using? Because once you put a tool out in the world that impacts the way people work creatively, I think you kind of have a responsibility to ensure that it's there for them. Like whether that tool is a pencil or if it's a computer program or if it's an app or if it's some kind of paintbrush, like somewhere out there, somebody is using that thing in a very specific way that's really meaningful to them and their work and their process and their art. And when that thing isn't available to them anymore, that's really frustrating. And so that was part of that process, which is like, okay, how do we still keep this tool available to people, but make it a lot more cost effective and possible to sort of keep in this state? And so that was what shipping the Vine camera was all about, was that responsibility. Wow. I know it wasn't the ideal or desired outcome, but I really like the outlook and perspective you've taken in the situation. And the fact that you and that team that was there felt the responsibility for the content and the community after the fact, which led to the launch of the Vine camera product. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I'm not sure that I felt like it was an opportunity. <laughs> I think I just 
just felt I was, oh God, I was just like, I mean, I, I felt like vomiting constantly for months while I was going through that. That's really what was going through my head. It was more like a responsibility. Like, okay, this is a thing that landed in my lap and it's super shitty, but like, if I don't take care of this, who the fuck is going to take care of this? So let's just figure out how to do it and figure out how to do it gracefully and figure out how to do it ethically and as responsibly as I possibly can. It wasn't really until afterwards that I had months and months of reflection that I was able to frame it as an opportunity and a really incredible experience that I'm grateful for. At the time, mark my words, it was it was fucking difficult. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I really couldn't imagine. But flipping to a more positive note, today you're back at it as an entrepreneur working on launching a new startup called Trash. So can you tell us a bit more about what this startup is all about and what motivated you to start it and continue down this path of multimedia creative tools? So um, to take this all full circle, I think this will be a nice wrap up to this session. Back in my no TV days of being a kid, I did have something cool, which is that one day, I remember coming home from school and my, my friend and I were, my best friend from across the street, she and I were like rummaging around in my basement looking for something. We had like a big costume box down there and we found in the closet a video camera. It was like still in its box, wrapped up in cellophane, hadn't even been touched yet. And we were like, oh my God, this is amazing. So of course, what do we do? We take it around the neighborhood and we're like shooting all this video with it. And of course we come home and like my dad catches us red handed and we, we get a very stern <laughs> sort of talking to about taking other people's property, et cetera, et cetera. And this was like back in the day of when home videos were all the rage. You know, it, it was the 90s and everyone was shooting shooting video. And so my dad had bought this camera to shoot some like videos, at, I don't know, over the holidays or something like that. And he wasn't going to use it. Like, of course, he wasn't like going to have that much time to do with this thing. To his credit, even though he was pretty angry at us for like taking this piece of equipment, he saw what we were shooting and he was like you know this is actually pretty cool like you should just keep doing this but if you break it you buy it <laughs> so that was that and all through elementary school and like even in almost my teenage years until we became like too cool to make videos I was doing this and I was spending hours and hours after school every day editing VHS tape together with my friends and I learned a lot about video editing. I also learned that it is really, really, really time consuming. And this was something that came back to me when I was at Vine. One of the things I noticed is that while it worked really, really well for these Vine creators and people that knew a lot about video editing and knew a lot about acting, it sometimes didn't work so well for everybody else, which was sort of like, I think, both a blessing and a curse definitely a blessing and a curse. And I started to think about like, how could you make this easier for everybody else, the people that like don't really know how to shoot video. And so that was just sort of a thing that I was kind of like, it was a thing I noticed when I was working there, right? And then much later, after I had left that whole situation, I started to kind of think about that a bit more seriously, as I started to get way more deeply interested in in AI. And this was just sort of a natural extension of my curiosity and interest because I had already spent so much time around big data and machine learning that it was it was just kind of like a natural place, I think, for my interest to sort of channel into next. From there, you can sort of start to see the culmination of all of these things, like my interest in music and video, and how do you use people's data to like design algorithms that can create aesthetic 
beautiful blobs and chunks of media and like what can you do with computer vision these days and understanding how to maybe like edit video together it all just sort of culminated into what we're experimenting out with trash which is like can you do productive editing for video which is what we're working on and it's really really hard and it's really really fun <laughs> that's amazing i'm looking forward to checking it out when it's released are there any betas coming out soon yeah, we're going to have a closed alpha ready probably around Q3 this year, and people will be able to try it out then. Awesome. So do you have any final last thoughts or words of advice for other entrepreneurs who are working on their own products, specifically in the consumer or creative tech space? So many. Yeah, I think like the most important thing is people are going to tell you it's hard. People are going to tell you it's hard again and again and again and again, and people are going to try and deter you from doing it and tell you that you should go do something in enterprise or something with a more obvious model. Because working in consumer tech, it's a lot like writing a hit TV show or writing a hip hop song. Like some of these things work out phenomenally well and others are duds. And that's why it's frustrating for investors because you take chances on things and you just don't know what's going to go to the moon. And like, sure, after you've done a few and you have a few hits on your CV, it's like, definitely easier for people to take a chance on you but my thought would be just like if that is what you're passionate about and you're listening to this and you think you're the kind of person that has a good insight or what people are interested in and what they do and if you have good instincts about products and you love observing people's behavior and fine-tuning it for them and you feel like you could make a great career in consumer then just go for it. And don't listen to all those people that are going to tell you it's super hard. And there's no clear path. And you don't know when you're going to have a win. And like, it's really difficult, because all of these things are true. But they're not a reason not to do it. That's an amazing way to end the episode. Hannah, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure talking to you. enjoyed this podcast we'd love to hear about it and have you share with friends find us on facebook or twitter at hack the start or drop us an email hey at hack the start.com you can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding hack the start on apple podcasts breaker audio soundcloud stitcher or your favorite podcast app thanks for listening